Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Ig Publishing, publisher of a new novel in stories called Lord, the One You Love is Sick by Casey Thornton. Lord, the one you love is sick, is a gorgeously written and heartrending work of fiction from an important new voice in the literature of the American South. Publishers Weekly raves, quote, these stories collectively coalesce into a resonant, emotionally searing nexus of hard truths, buried secrets, and emotional pain that readers won't soon forget. Lord, the one you love is sick by Casey Thornton. Available now from IG Publishing. Hey, you guys. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Happy Thanksgiving or almost Thanksgiving, depending on when you're listening to this. I hope you're being safe. I hope you're taking care of yourselves and taking care of others with regard to COVID and so on and so forth. My guest today is Darian G. She has two books out this year. One of them is called Other Small Histories. It's a poetry collection available from the Poetry Society of America. It was the winner of uh, the Poetry Society's Chapbook Fellowship Award. The other book is called Allegiance. It's a collection of micro-essays available from Legacy Isle Publishing. Darian G. is the author of five novels published by Penguin Random House. She's been translated into 11 languages. She has worked in literary fiction, poetry, genre fiction. She's had a really varied career. And I had an excellent conversation with her. She was at home on the big island of Hawaii. So let's get to it. Here's my talk with Darian G. And her books, again, are called Other Small Histories, a poetry collection, and then a collection of micro-essays called Allegiance. Here she is, folks. This is Darian G. I think that there's an always interesting thing with timing, right? From when you actually create a work and then when it shows up in the world. And um, you know, there's a huge lead time in general if you're with traditional publishing, like you know, my novels would take 18 months, right, from the time they're submitted, not even the time that I've written them. So it could be almost two or three years out. And 
this is interesting because for other small histories, which is my poetry chapbook from Poetry Society, I wrote a lot of that um, while I was in my MFA program a couple of years ago. And it just kind of went more of a traditional in that sort of traditional way. And then the pandemic happened. So we were originally planning to launch in June in New York. And then, you know, obviously that wasn't going to happen. And then there were issues with the printer. So we just kind of had to roll with it. And it was the same with Allegiance that actually um, I'm launching with a local Hawaii publisher, this sort of micro memoir line where we're trying to help people tell their stories using short forms. And I kind of realized, well, I guess I need to give them a really clear example of what that might look like. So I pulled together a lot of my writing um, and wrote a bunch of new pieces and we kind of um, put it together in that way. So it came together really unexpectedly. This was over the summer um, during the pandemic. And then because we are a hybrid publisher, we just were able to sort of put it out quickly on its own. And then the timing just worked the way it did, because we also thought, who knows how long it'll take Ingram, the pub- the printer that we use, to get it out. And then, boom, it's like within three weeks, <laughs> they both, um, they're both going to be out. So, and you know, the election was happening. And I just, I'm just at the point, quite frankly, Brad, where I'm like, just roll with it. You know, I'll just like, let it go as a way it's as it unfolds and just see what kind of cool things come from it. Cause there's really no way to control it at this stage and this year of all years. Yeah. I have a book out on submission right now and I keep thinking to myself, like, does anybody have the headspace to be reading <laughs> and considering anything at this point? <laughs> you know, it's such a day by day thing. You know, I have these days where I'm super productive and I'm feeling kind of focused and, you know, I'm still maybe a little edgy, but I feel really like I can handle stuff. And then I swear I have like two or three days where I'm like, it's like 10 o'clock. I'm like, I'm going back to bed. It's like, I'm done. That's it. I'm tapped out. And, you know, I just, I think it's such an in the moment. If you're into being in the present moment, welcome to 2020. It's like, that's, you know, to even plan or think ahead feels almost impossible. I like to believe sometimes that what we're going through and what we've been going through for quite a while now is going to lead to something better that it somehow it's like a crucible that we have to exist in and endure. And then eventually it's going to, you know, we're going to come out at the other end of it and be better somehow. Do you ever have, I, that, do you ever have that thought? Yeah, no, I, I love that. I actually really uh, believe that. And I know that it's hard for some people, I think, to digest that because things feel so bad right now and so difficult right now. But I feel like even even from the past, you know, six months, nine months, year, I mean, look how much we've come to understand ourselves individually and as a community and as a country. And I already feel like it's a lot of that hard work is being done in, term of, in terms of us, you know, internally understanding ourselves better. So I actually have a lot of faith in that. And it's just really hard to see how it's happening. And I hate to use a metaphor like childbirth because that's a whole nother story with me and my three kids in that childbirth. But it's kind of like that. It's like, it's just this thing where I think if we stay present and we pay attention and we're really honest with how we're feeling, I really feel like it's, it's going to be super significant for our own growth in a really good way, in a really good way, not a hard way. Um, and we'll see that. That's a Buddhist sentiment, or at least I recognize it that way. Um, my mom is actually a practicing Buddhist. She converted in her fifties and I've learned a lot from her over the years with that, you know, that you actually don't look at anything as good or bad. You just look at something that just is. And I think the power in that, you know, people are like, well, I just want to focus on the good things. But if you let yourself 
focus on the good things and you're persuaded by what looks good or happy, then the flip side is that when something quote unquote bad happens, you're going to be affected by that too. So if you stay in a place of, I don't want to say neutrality, but I like to tell people like be in observer mode, like notice yourself, notice other people and how you're responding to what's happening. Then it kind of like frees you from all the sort of emotional and ego entanglements that like totally can knock us down. Yeah, you know, I it's funny that you say that. What was coming to mind uh, when you were talking about the ways in which the past year, especially with the pandemic and quarantine, has turned people inward and has forced us to maybe confront ourselves to a degree that we otherwise would not have, uh, is an article I read this morning, and it was about a woman, I believe in the Phoenix area, who had a meltdown at a Target and attacked like a display of uh, pandemic masks. Like, it's the kind of thing that we went viral on the internet and sort of ruined her life because she became this, like, viral sensation of craziness. And the article, though, was very compassionate in a sense because it was she was kind of in the aftermath of it and talking about her mental health. And I think that if I'm being honest, I'm the kind of person who, if I'm on the internet, would read about something like that and be like, that person is just nuts. And then I started to think more deeply about it. I was like, oh, you know people might have pre-existing mental health challenges that are exacerbated by Trump or exacerbated by the pandemic or exacerbated by financial stress or all of the above. And then they're sitting at home doom scrolling and ingesting all of this fear and despair porn. And it just creates a, a you know, a really intense mental health situation that will sometimes manifest in these kinds of outbursts. It made me understand it more deeply and to have some, like some uh, sympathy for this woman, you know? Yeah, I, I didn't see that, but I have to tell you when you're telling me about it, I felt like that was really relatable. And there's a certain part of me that actually, I don't know, kind of, I mean, I think we're all always at risk right now of being slightly crazy, having our bad days, having our meltdowns. I mean, I, I know I've had them. I've had days where I've got two kids who are home. We've only done online school in Hawaii. The kids have never been back in the classroom, even for hybrid. I have one, um, one child who, not a child, a young adult who's in college and, you know, navigating that. And she's in Vermont, which is super far from Hawaii. And then a husband who's been furloughed since, since March. And I feel like, um, insanity and bad days is pretty much going to happen. And, you know, I mean, at least you only attacked a, a display of masks. I mean, I can kind of get behind that. It's like <laughs> you know, no, no humans were harmed in the, in the making of this meltdown. I can, I'm like, all right, well that's, that's already, you know, a plus, but you know, it's like, man, we just, we have bad days and I just really want to always make room for that. And I want to make room for the reality of us sometimes behaving badly. I just don't want it to be at the expense of another person. Um, that's kind of one thing that's a really big deal for me, right, is is if what we're doing is really causing harm to other people. And I feel like, man, I want permission to have a bad day. And I want permission to maybe have some behavior in public that I kind of might regret later. But boy, you know what? In the moment, that's just kind of where I am. I mean, I hope I hope to never kick over display of masks or anything otherwise. But I also would like to think that if if it were to happen, that there would be some room for that and that there would be some compassion <laughs> from that. And, you know, and um, I, I like the realness of it. And again, you know, 
no one was harmed in the making of that particular moment, I hope, other than whoever had to clean up after her. But I'm actually surprised, Brad, that there's actually not been more issues in terms of mental health. That's my, one of my biggest concerns about the pandemic for our kids, for just people who aren't used to it. I don't know if, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder at that myself. Like, first of all, I would say, too, like the, the real key to kicking over a, a display in Target is to make sure nobody's filming it with their phone. Yeah, really. As long as, as long as that happens, you're fine. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But I, you know, talking about the mental health challenges of the times that we're living in, I am not certain we have a real way of measuring it. I don't know if we ever will, but it seems like it's so big and things are happening so quickly and often behind closed doors, you know, like we're all at home. People are cordoned off from one another uh, to a large degree. So you, I sit here wondering like, what's going on in people's homes? How is this affecting teenage kids, for example, you know, for whom this time in their lives is so like maximally social and friends mean so much at that age and to have your senior year of high school taken from you, basically like that, that stuff is happening. And my kids are young. I have a disabled child. He can't go to therapy in person. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're losing incredibly valuable months of his life where he could be accessing equipment and, you know, hands-on therapy that's vital to his development and it's just gone. And so, you know, I don't know, there's a million different ways that this is manifesting and, it's just so colossal, the scale of it, you know, when you try to consider what the impacts are. You know, I think uh, it, it is so hard and it's so hard because and I think, you know, really, there's no way around not bringing this up. I mean, it's so hard because this is also an election week, month, year. Right. So it's like on top of whatever trauma we might be experiencing from the pandemic and you know, having maybe friends or people that we know who might have gotten sick or really ill or even even died, you know, there's just also the trauma that comes with all of the unrest that we've had in this country. And the election, which, you know, I didn't really realize till last week when I was in it, like, wow, I think I have some PTSD from the past four years that I am, I'm really good at actually making them the best of things when I need to and kind of almost like sucking it up. But Boy, it really came to a head for me last week. And, um, and what, what, may I interrupt you? Like, how so? Yeah. I'm curious to know how, you know, how did it I, come to a head? I, you, you know, I, I think, you know, as an, as an Asian American woman, I think there's a lot of narrative around where people of color and women of color are, you know, politically and so on. But Mike is a little bit 
unusual. You know, I was born in Missouri. Um, I didn't I didn't grow up in Missouri, but I was born in Missouri. Um, and then my dad was in oil and gas, so we moved around the country a lot. So I spent a good chunk of my formative years in Texas. And um, and then I was overseas for a chunk of time as well. And then I was um, East Coast for college. I've been all over. And um, but I, you know, with my novels, I write about small towns. I actually write about small Midwestern towns and communities. It's just something that I'm really comfortable with. And I feel like I have a real understanding of that kind of dynamic. And and so there's been a part of me that was honestly prepared for a really close election and that we would lose. And um, and I say we, meaning um, Democrats and um, the Biden-Harris ticket. And I felt like this four years ago, which, um, you know, I actually lost some friendships temporarily when I said, I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to win. I think we have to be prepared for a Trump administration. And a lot of people got really upset. And I'm from Hawaii, which is, you know, a blue state, even though it's becoming actually redder every year, which is interesting. Um, but I I thought four years ago we were going to lose, and then we did, and we were all crying election night, even though I thought that. And then I was just prepared for the worst, which I think is sort of a dynamic that I have because of my childhood and how I was raised and so on. And when it became clear to me last week that, oh, my God, we might we might win, I just lost it. You know, and when you talk about like how difficult it is to be in the pandemic and and how hard it's for the kids, you have to I think we have to include the fact that the kids are witnessing the adults losing it sometimes. Right. So it's not even like the kids are in a bubble having this, you know, sort of lonely experience. They're in this bubble with their parents who might be losing it, too, from time to time. And, you know, it was just a really it was a big thing in this household, which is fairly, you know, it's just we're not. um a super political household in that way, you know, where we talk about it, we're super vocal about what we believe in, but we, it last week was just, was a really, was a really big deal for all of us. And, um, and then, you know, this whole yo-yo from the past back and forth. I mean, the yo-yo of the past few days, that is what I'm, I'm prepared for. I'm prepared for that kind of craziness and that kind of, you know, just, am I surprised? No. Right. With the stuff that's happening and how it's unfolding. Um, but I wasn't ready for last week. It was, it was awesome. It was really awesome, but I wasn't ready. So that took an emotional toll on me because it let me, it let me have hope again. And it let me feel like really like, wow, I just, you know, just optimistic about what might be possible. And so I just, like I said, it just, it, it caught me off guard in a way that I've been prepared for the worst and I hadn't been prepared to hold on to so much hope for so many days. And then, you know, end up with the outcome that we have. It's just amazing. Even with all the crap that's happening around it, I'm still like, it's, it's, this is where I'd like to be with it. So I'm, I'm happy with where we are with it. Did you dance? Huh? Did you like I, dance in the streets? Like what happened in, on the big Island in Hawaii where you are? Ironically, my community is pretty red. This street has a lot of retirees and a lot of people who are are, don't share the same views of my family and my immediate next door neighbors. And so um, it was pretty weirdly low key on my island. And also we're pretty rural. Again, you know, the sort of, I think the sort of rural urban kind of thing that always comes into play when we talk about how people end up voting and what their personality is when they talk about personal issues and civic issues and so on. But um, it was pretty awesome. I had a lot of cake. I had a lot of cake. So, you know, <laughs> and any coffee cake is good. What about what about seeing uh, Kamala Harris give that speech, you know, the victory speech as the first female vice president elect and the first woman of color? 
um, like how did like I'm assuming that was a big part of what hit you so hard. Is that accurate? You know, I will say that when she joined the ticket at that point, I was like, wow, you know, we might have a chance. And even if things because I was being my nace, my sort of nays, even if it doesn't go the way we, we wanted to go, I'm like doing everything I can to support this campaign. So at least we're going to go out swinging. And I have to say that until that moment, I was still sort of more in my yeah, it's just not going to happen. We're just not going to be able to pull it off, you know, as we implode sometimes as a party. And it's just I, I think we don't always have our finger on what's happening in middle America. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And so, but when she joined the ticket, I kind of thought, man, any shot we have, I'm going for it. I'm going to support them in any way I can. And, um, it's really personal for me because we have family members, um, who are, you know, very directly affected by this ticket. And I, I was really, I'm just really, really excited that we have her. I just think she's super smart. I think um, I think that she's exactly what I want my daughter to feel excited about and my sons to respect and understand. And and you know, I I'm glad that Biden brought her on. I mean, I know he was influenced by Obama and his whole team, but he did it, you know. And and it was smart. And they they're going to be good together. And we've got her. And I'm just. Yeah, I couldn't be I couldn't be more excited about that. And you said uh, a couple of times that your childhood sort of prepared you to expect the worst or to prepare for the worst. Like what do you mean by that? You know, I think because I grew up, I spent a good chunk of my um, childhood in the South, and then I did grow up overseas. I actually spent a few years in Hong Kong. We were expats there because my, my dad was in oil and gas. Um, and then I worked for a few years after college in Beijing, China, uh, for Pricewaterhouse, um, well, now PricewaterhouseCoopers. And it was weird. I've always had this weird thing where, you know, when you're a person of color in a predominantly conservative community, white community, you're always trying to do what you can to make people kind of feel comfortable, right? You just, or at least I was, I just didn't want to be, you know, um, somebody that was I already as an outsider. I didn't want to be more outside than I needed to be. Uh, so I tolerated, I think a lot of comments that I think most, you know, people of color are probably familiar with, you know, and the weird thing was that when I was in China, I had this reverse thing where, because I'm not fluent, uh, I'm not a fluent Chinese speaker where I wasn't Chinese enough. Right. So it's like, you're either not white enough or not American enough, which of course I can't be any whiter than I am because I'm not white, but in China, it's like, I wasn't Chinese enough. And then, um, one of the essays I have in Allegiance, which is my the book of micro essays about growing up Chinese American and motherhood and families, about a time I was at a Chamber of Commerce dinner because I was on the board, and a woman was telling me that my English was really good, and I kept telling her, and she was from the South somewhere I can't remember, and she her husband worked for Shell Oil, and she, I kept telling her I said yeah well you know I was born and raised in the U.S. and she just was like yeah but still, it's like she just couldn't. She thought she was doing me a favor by praising me, and she just couldn't hear that my English was really good because I'm from the U.S. I was born in the U.S., and English is my first language. It was like she just couldn't wrap her head around that, which is so weird, and here she is as, as an expat in China. So I've had all of these identity issues that I've had to sort of play with and this sort of, I feel like, an accommodation of of my community, you know, I mean, when I was with a bunch of Chinese people in China, I had to apologize for the fact that I didn't speak Chinese. <laughs> well, it was like, I, 
I so I, I I think it sort of put me on the defensive and put me in this place where I was like, um, not that I expect the worst, but you know I am I think really good at using both my left and right brain, and I do think I was taking a pretty good, I was taking the temperature of what I felt like was happening in the country, and and I felt like as much as I just wanted to be like yeah yeah with you know this is this is you know we should all be super diverse and multicultural and people should accept people for who they are i also felt like i spent enough time in the south to be like yeah but i just also know that that's really hard for a lot of people and um and i think that was just a thing where i'm like i just i don't like to undercount you know i always like to play it not i don't play it safe but i like to sort of i feel like i've always played the odds but i i really do like to feel like i have a real handle on what's what I'm getting into or what I'm believing in. And so this was the election was just part of that. And, and, you know, me trying to weigh what I knew with what I was hoping and, and what I expected. Yeah, no, I feel, I, I think what happened to me and, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds, but I feel like I can sometimes let my emotions get the better of me. Like I'll be like really hopeful and then I'll look at the polls and I'll be like, it's going to happen. It's going to be a massive <laughs> landslide. You know, <laughs> like I, I, I had this thought in my head that uh, older voters in particular who were frustrated by COVID and who are absorbing the worst of its impacts and who can't hug their grandchildren. I thought that older voters in places like Florida would turn in large enough numbers to flip a state like that. But I was totally wrong. Yeah, you know, I... um I I didn't really ever hold out for that kind of hope. I, I feel like this is this election and the past four years and and what's come is is really super super basic. It's all about our most basic fears, right? Our most basic fears of safety and security. So I know that the economy, yes, came into play for some people. I know COVID came into play for some people, but unless their most basic fears got addressed. I didn't think they were going to flip a whole lot. And I think that we're still seeing that. I mean, if we look at the numbers, we see that. And I think that is a rural versus city dynamic as well, you know, um, worldview, all of that. So, but honestly, I mean, it's like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm really happy with what happened last week because I still feel like that's what we all needed was, you know, um, a wake up call on different levels. And of course, you know, we, we still, we still won. I'm going to say that we won. So I, you know, I'm of course very happy that we're having the conversation from this, this part of everything, but I never trusted the polls. So I was, I was not worried about that part. I was already like, yeah, the polls, I remember what happened four years ago. <laughs> so yeah. I am a number cruncher too. So I like to look at the data a lot. See what, what's up with that? You can do numbers and, and pros. <laughs> That's not a usual combo. Oh, you know, I will. I, what I tell people actually is I think that um, it's really I am definitely somebody who's more creative. Um, but because and I've been writing since, you know, fourth grade, third grade, I just have always been a storyteller. But I also have this very practical side of me. And I at the time, the only real jobs you would have. Right. And this is back in the 70s was like a journalist. And I knew that wasn't my M.O. And nobody I really knew, certainly not personally, was a writer um, full time like that was their day job. And if they were a full time writer, they were like a starving artist. So I realize that I'd probably have to get a real J-O-B out of college. And, you know, I think I had my parents weren't super strict with myself and my brother the way some Asian parents were. But there was always this this, I think, pressure to want to do well and to not embarrass your parents and to be a little bit competitive. 
And, you know, I could never go against the real superstar Asian American, you know, um, you know, the ones that, you know, Westinghouse scholars and played like three instruments in Carnegie Hall and like (laughs) perfect SAC scores. That was so not me at all. But I was always really good with words. I was um, great in person if I was meeting somebody and interacting with them. And so I was also really good at figuring out what my strengths were and figuring out what to go for and what to not even bother with. And I think that's um, a practical skill that I've just always had. And, and, you know, those years that I was in business were really, I say business, but, you know, just having a corporate job. I know they were hard in some ways because I'm not really an early morning person. I'm a total late night writer um, and I had to obviously get up and go to work. But that was really good training for me, I think, when I was ready to write um, full time, you know, quote unquote, because I had a certain kind of training in place from those years um, having, you know, and I was also really good at being able to see, okay, what makes sense? How am I going to spend my time? So I think both time management and then also, quite frankly, looking at budget, right? Like, okay, it's time for me to figure out how to make more money again because I'm running through my savings again or whatever that is. And, um, and I think it's really important if you want to make creativity your day job, right. That you know how to understand the business of your creativity as well. You know, um, I think there's a place for both. I think you need both if you, if you want to make it your day job. And what did you do at uh, price waterhouse? I was an in international tax. And so I'm, I'm just going to say this. Okay. So I'm actually not super great at math. So I never like did calculus or anything like that, but tax is basic arithmetic, right? A basic arithmetic. It's, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. It's also all about tax code, which is reading. And I'm a voracious reader and I'm a super fast reader. So when you put those two things together, and the main reason I, you know, I don't really like to admit this. The main reason I accepted a job with Pricewaterhouse after I graduated was because they offered 22 days paid vacation right off the bat. So you add in weekends, that's like a whole month off. So that's like the writer part of me being like, how much do I not have to work <laughs> so that I can write, you know? Um, and that's sort of what, how I did it was figuring out what job looked like one that I could do really. I, I was, an, I was a poli sci major, you know, I never took an accounting class, but tax is not accounting. Tax is just how well can you process information, know where to find the right answers, and then do basic math. And, you know, by then it was all computerized, so it wasn't even that hard. Let's see. You, you seem like you have a level of practicality that a lot of writers I talk with, and probably talking about myself here too, do <laughs> not necessarily have. I don't know. You know, I mean, I think I sound that way, and I certainly have tools and, and a pretty, I think, good toolbox with that stuff. But I'm also really big into visualization. <laughs> I'm also really big in like going with the flow, and I'm also really big in like trusting your instincts and going down rabbit holes and just doing stuff that other people might be like that makes no sense. And and um, I guess the only thing I can say to that is that it just makes sense to me. And I will do things that really sometimes make no sense at all and looks like a risk and looks super impulsive. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. It usually does, but actually a lot of, well, actually I shouldn't say that. I've been lucky with some things that have worked out, but definitely there are a lot of things that didn't work out. I think I'm also really good at just being like, well, okay, so onward, right? Like, I I might mourn it or feel like crap for a while or be really totally disappointed. And then it's like, I move on. And I think that's the creative part of me that's been trained to like, not fall too much into despair. What about, what about learning? You said learning the business of your creativity is an important component of being, you know, successful as a creative person. 
over the course of your career, are there big things you can point to that you've learned, um, either the easy way or the hard way when it comes to the business of writing that you could share? Yeah, you know, I think we just have this really romantic notion that when you're doing something that you love, that it's either going to be easy or it's just going to flow. And I think any of us who've been doing anything that we love for a while, we just know that that's not the case, right? That there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and frustration and despair that go into it. But you see it through because it's just either who you are or something you're super excited about or something that's really, really important to you. And so I think, you know, looking at a lot of the sort of, I don't know, romantic view of what it means to be a writer, right? Like I don't write in coffee shops, you know what I mean? It's like I I have written under the worst of conditions, honestly, and I and under conditions where if people were to have seen me in that moment, writing would be like, I don't want that, or I can't believe she's writing like that, or that is like the most unglamorous way to write ever. Um, and I just did it because it was important to me and because I had to get it done. And I think, um, I think, realizing that um and then also i think not letting yourself be discouraged for too long you know i think this whole idea with writer's block or you know when you have a lot of doors that are shut when you're trying to make something happen that feels super important i think realizing that you need to kind of i have this term it's called creative pivoting i know a lot of other people have similar terms or or even that term but i feel like if you're a creative thinker, it's like find a creative solution, right? So if you've got a problem and, and the way you thought it was going to work out, isn't working out, it's like find a creative solution. You're a creative person. You could totally do it. And, um, I think actually not trying to do things the way people have done things is actually one of the best skills you can have. But at the same time, it's important to know what works. So I've, I've met a lot of writers, for example, who, really don't understand the submission process. They really don't understand when they might need an agent, when they don't need an agent, what publishing looks like, what people are buying and not buying. And I don't mean that from a genre standpoint, but just understanding a little bit about the business. And it hurts them. And then they say, you know, well, I just want to write and I want somebody else to handle my website or I want somebody else to do my marketing or somebody else to do my PR. And it's like, it's sort of like, I think, owning a car. You don't have to know exactly how to like build a car or how it runs, but you need to know enough so that if you're going to take your car for an oil change, you get an idea if somebody's taking you for a ride. I think it's the same thing with any creative career. You have to understand the nuts and bolts of it enough so that if you are going to hire out, you you know if you've got somebody good or not. I mean, you have a way to measure, and then you also have a way to measure, this isn't working. I need to shift. This this idea needs a, some time. It needs to cook a little longer and then I need to try something different and I need to keep growing and learning. And, and, um, I feel like if you want to, like I said, either make it your day job or have quote unquote success, depending on how you define that, I think you have a responsibility actually as a creative person to understand what you're getting into and to accept that, you know, your gift and your, it's, there's a certain responsibility, I guess, that comes with all of that. So can you talk about how you broke in, like with your first book? Um, like how many books total? Forgive me. I'm, I'm... That's okay. Yeah. So, you know, um, before these two books, so I have five novels out with Penguin Random House with different imprints with them. Three are written um, under pen name because at the time of my first novel, my husband also had some books coming out with Harry Abrams. They were nonfiction books on golf. Uh, the inner game of golf. And we, our names are almost identical. My name is Darian G. His name is Darren G. So I wrote my first three novels um, under pen name. And then I wrote my 
uh, last two novels that were with Penguin Random House under my name, and uh, one of them did super well and um, sold at auction. And it's really funny because um, I always kind of knew that I was going to be a writer, and I knew that novels were sort of my jam, I guess. I just I just really understood story in, in a way that I can't explain because I never really took an English class. And I got my MFA at 50, so I didn't have some of the same mechanics, but I was a huge reader. Um, and I actually, when I came back from China after working for Pricewaterhouse, I took a year off to write my novel, right? I burned through my savings and I wrote a novel. I got an agent and then I got cold feet and I never returned that agent contract. I just, I actually still have it. I use it when I, when I teach, uh, workshops about, about publishing and, and getting agents and writing and, and getting in your own way and self-sabotage. I actually still have that, that contract, but um, I put that novel away and then I went back to work. I actually worked for a venture capital firm for a year or two and then um, got married and moved out to Hawaii. And we were actually here, I guess, about four years. My husband had left his job to try to follow his passion to tr- open up a golf academy. And we were so broke and we were super unhappy and we almost got a divorce. And when we decided that we would pivot, and make it work and make our marriage work. I told him, I said, I know one thing I can do is probably write a novel that will sell. And I had very low expectations in terms of what it might be. It was more um, chiclet at the time. I was in my 30s. So a beach read, but I felt like I could write it. Um, And I did, and we had one child at that time. And I will say this for creative people who have a really, really full life. I actually believe that um, sometimes it's better, especially when you're starting out to write with that kind of stress, um, not, I shouldn't use the word stress, even though that's definitely what it was, but I had so much going on and actually it was a blessing for me because it helped me get out of my own way. I just did not overthink this novel. I wrote it, I edited it, I did the best I could. And then I started querying. Um, whereas, you know, almost seven years prior, you know, I'd spent a whole year off. I was single. I was just dating my husband. I was doing my coffee shops and luxuriating, having these long days of writing and having angst. And um, and it was almost like I had too much time on my hands. Um, writing with a young child and being broke helped me say, okay, I'm either going to do it or I'm not. So I did it. Um, I queried. I just, you know, slush piled and I got my agent that way. And um, I actually have been in a situation where for different reasons I've had to um, keep shifting agents. So after my first book, um, I ended up finding another agent. We did a couple books together. And then I found my third agent and she was the one who had sold my my book at auction. And it was funny because my numbers up to that point had been what they called trending down. So my then second agent had told me that it would really be hard to sell me because my numbers were going down, which is like, I think the bane of every mid-list author, like, oh my gosh, you know, that industry speak, uh, your sales aren't good enough. And, and I had been really discouraged by that. But then I was like, well, all right, I guess I'll just try to write another book and make it really, really good. And that was the book that was sold at auction and got me um, an agent with actually with William Morris. And then when we were in auction, she told me, just so you know, because the auction was doing really well, if the book doesn't go well, I can't sell you again. It was like the same thing, but for a different reason. I was like, now I was like, the book had done too well in auction. And and it was just, at that point, I had kind of learned, you know, gone through different editors and different agents. I just kind of learned at that point, you know what? You just got to like do the best you can as a writer and like give the rest to God or what the universe, whatever it is you believe. And she was right. That's what happened. You know, the book didn't perform as they had hoped. And um, she didn't try to sell me again. I actually didn't have another book at that point. Um, But I was just really discouraged. And that actually created a pivot for me 
into what what was at first nonfiction. I wrote a how-to book on writing the memoir, and it was about specifically about the Hawaii market, um, helping people here tell their stories because we have such a long tradition of oral history. Um, and I wanted to give people tools for getting some of those stories down on paper. And then from there, I decided to go into an MFA program so I could keep learning and ended up with poetry and then uh, won the Poetry Society of America chapbook fellowship for the collection of poems I'd put together um, and then went into creative nonfiction with this book of essays. Um, So it's been interesting. And now I'm writing a novel again. I'm actually doing NaNoWriMo and trying to do it. um, uh, And I just feel like, you know, at – at any of those points, Brad, you could be like, it was over. I mean, it was, it looked like it was over. And I, I felt like it was over for a while. I'm not going to lie. I definitely went through periods um, where I was really, really bummed out and feeling like, all right, well, I guess I have my time. That's it. It's somebody else's turn. I just did that whole thing. And, and what I've realized is like creativity doesn't work like that. Even success doesn't work like that. So it's, I wouldn't change anything. Right. But in the moment, of course, it's just, it sucks. But Anyway, so that's that's my very long answer to your question. No, it's interesting. You've had a you've had like a, like a kind of like a full range of experience, and you know something you talked about with regard to the book that went to auction that strikes me is, you know, I think a lot of authors have played with that scenario in their mind. Like, whoa, imagine getting a big advance. Like, who hasn't had that little fun game uh, in their in their brain at some point? And I think in particular about authors who do have some huge publication success in the sense of selling a lot of copies. They publish a book that does extraordinarily well in the marketplace, and then they have to follow it up. And, you know, as nice, like that's the catbird seat, right? And as nice as, as nice as that would be, I can imagine the pressure that one might feel to replicate success in a market as fickle and unpredictable as, you know, the publishing market. And what I've thought to myself in the past is that, boy, if that ever happened to me, like, let's say I get some piddly advance on my book and for some reason it catches fire and it sells a bajillion copies. On the next sale, it's likely that a publisher might offer me a big advance, hoping to replicate that success. The question I have is that would it be a shrewder move to turn down that advance and say, you know what, I'll take a, a, like a massively reduced advance in exchange for a higher cut of the profits on the back end? Have you ever thought about that? Is it, am, I, am I crazy? I guess it would be hard to turn down the money. Well, you know, traditional publishers don't really work like that. I mean, they they, they have, you know, your agent takes this amount. You could do that. This is what I've, I've learned, and I'm sure there are people who might feel otherwise. But, you know, I had a lot of guilt about that whole money thing, and I've actually had that scenario run through my mind. You know, well, what if I had done this? What if I hadn't? It ended up being a two-book deal with the publisher I went with. And what if I hadn't done a two-book deal? What if I'd just done a one-book deal and then there was less pressure? And, you know, this is this is what it comes down to. In the moment, you just have to do an internal check-in and see what feels right. And I will just tell you as somebody who's been all over the map with publishing, you know, I've also done um, indie publishing, self-publishing, hybrid publishing. I mean, I've just done everything. And if you have the opportunity to if some publisher wants to pay you a lot of money for your book, um, I would advise you to take it. And I think that because it is so unpredictable that any kind of clever, I guess, thinking you might have about it may or may not work. So it's just a matter of if you want to take that chance. Um, you know, there are people who wish they took more. There are people who wish they took less and they assume the outcome would be different. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I don't 
know how we can really know for sure. All I know is that we need to stop feeling bad about whatever decision it is that we make about our, our work and where we let it go. I think if you have very specific ideas about how you want your book published and how you want it to be presented to the world, then, you know, you stick by your guns and you let other things go. But I think otherwise, I'm like, gosh, just enjoy it. If there's somebody who says we're super excited about your book, we want to get it out in the world, then, you know, and we want to pay you a lot for it. <laughs> then I'm like, you know, let them because strategically, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if there's going to be a pandemic around the corner. You don't know if something's going to happen and your next book does or doesn't happen. And so I'm like, just enjoy the moment and just check in. And if it feels okay and it's not guilt that's making you make that decision, like I shouldn't take this money, then just appreciate it, you know, and, um, and move through it. I mean, you will probably have, we will all have deals where we're like, yeah, that's just not a fit. You know, that publisher's not a fit. Um, you know, I have a lot of cover art that I really hate that I feel like really affected sales. But I also feel like as a, as a creator, you also, in engaging with the world, you have to just let some things go and you have to let your, your creative partners um, do what they think is best, even if they sometimes also get it wrong. You know, we assume that it would have been right if we had held control. And I, I don't even know if that's actually a, an accurate belief. I mean, I don't know if that's a truth that you can count on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I guess if you get to the level of, you know, Stephen King or where your name has become a brand and you're extraordinarily generative and you're publishing a book or two a year, you know, I think there is that echelon of writers, usually in the genre space, who can generally count on great sales and making it rain money. But for people in the literary, uh, you know, the literary genre or literary fiction or literary nonfiction, I mean... Maybe there are a few, but I feel like it's really fickle. Uh, it, it, that's been my experience having talked to a lot of writers. I don't know if anybody really knows. And when it happens, there's an element of magic to it. You know, I would say, you know, having been in traditional publishing for as long as I have, I, it's really fickle there too. You know, it's not just literary. I think the book business, um, I mean, to get to Stephen King's level, since you used him as an example, I mean, there's so many years that went into that. And he, you know, he published things under pen names. He wrote a lot of crap before he got stuff that was really working. And, and yeah, if you're that prolific, then of course it helps to always have something new out because if something doesn't work one year, a new book might work another year. I mean, it is a numbers game from that perspective, but if you're going to have one or two books out in the world, I think you just kind of decide what's important. Is it that it gets into as many hands as possible and has a chance, or is it that it has a certain kind of cover with a certain kind of publisher? And, and I don't, I really don't think there's any right or wrong answer. And I think that's always been the hard thing for me with my publishing career is I always feel like there's a little bit of judgment between genres and between, you know, the whole literary versus commercial space. And, and I just, um, you know, I'm personally just like, I'm exhausted by it. You know, I'm exhausted by feeling like I sometimes have to defend what I write or, or this is too commercial or this is not commercial enough. And, and I just feel like if I want to be in a place where I can celebrate the work that comes from me, especially if it's coming from a place of joy, even if it's not like hard hitting, you know, gorgeous literary prose. And that <laughs> now that I have stuff that's consider, considered super lyric and beautiful and moving and evocative, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, I don't expect to make any money, quite frankly, from these two books. That's really not what this is about. It's a different kind of expression and it has a different purpose as part of my literary portfolio, I guess. Um, but I, I feel like 
I feel like we're super judgy of other writers and we're also super judgy of our own work. And I feel like that is one of the most anti-creative places to be emotionally, you know? Well, now I'm, now I'm thinking about your, you know, your sort of like hyphenated career working for Pricewaterhouse uh, <laughs> and at like a venture capital firm, writing creatively, working in genre, working in like compressed uh, like micro nonfiction, like that's lyrical and poetic and all the rest. Like this is sort of your MO. You are a hyphenate. You do all sorts of different things and you have a lot of uh, like dexterity creatively and otherwise. Um, I think, yeah, I think I've been really lucky that I've, I've, I've seen, I guess my explorations in, in these different areas, you know, you know, work out for me in, in different ways. Um, and, you know, I, I really feel like it's part of my personality of being really curious, but also of just not wanting to be in a box. You know, I, I don't like it when I'm only like if people don't know about the other things I write, then they just refer to me as a poet. And I get actually really uncomfortable with that. And I also got really uncomfortable when people would just put me in a box and assume I only wrote women's fiction. Right. And then and it's just I think that that. I think that if you're somebody who's grown up with sort of that feeling of other that comes into play, you know, and I, I just have to say that, you know, when, when I say like, yeah, I work for Pricewaterhouse or I went to these schools or, you know, I work for this VC firm and say, it sounds really great, but it's like when I worked for that VC firm, I was so at the bottom of, and it was a super, there's like eight of us. Um, and I was just at the bottom of that. And I had to really almost beg for that job because I just didn't have the credentials. I mean, I basically offered to like wash car and run errands. I just really wanted that experience. And, and I was really lucky that, um, that the guy who hired me, who, um, Actually, his name is Bill Rosenzweigen. He's one of the co-founders for Republic of Tea, which was one reason why I really wanted to work with him. Um, gave me a chance, but it it wasn't like the traditional kind of thing, and it wasn't sexy or glamorous. It was, and it, I wasn't honestly very good at it. I was good at parts of it, and that's what I'm sort of seeing and have learned about myself. But you know, it wasn't like I was out there doing these really hot deals all the time and moving through stuff. I was there for a year as an associate and learning a lot, but it was like. It was so unglamorous in so many ways that I always feel like it sounds so great. And I always cringe when I say it because I think it paints a picture that's really not. You know, it's like a lot of this stuff was really hard and I didn't ever really feel like I fit in, Brad. And I don't even know that I even did a great job, but I was able to find enough of my strengths and skills that added some value. So that's kind of where it was with that. I mean, does that make sense? Oh, totally. I mean, I relate to it cause I've done a lot of different things in my career. And I think if you just sort of say it in a condensed form, people go, Oh wow. And I'm like, actually, I, I feel like I was sort of a fuck up at every single stop. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, think, I think that imposter syndrome thing is probably what drives a lot of writers in general. Right. So if you're a writer who also had your finger in like a lot of different pies or you're super entrepreneurial, cause you know, I also have a food blog that, you know, has actually been the thing that has sustained us through this pandemic. Then it's like, you know, you always have this. I mean, I do, I totally feel like I'm a fraud half the time or I'm just not good enough or that like at any second, it's all this house of cards is all going to come crashing down and people are going to be like, wow, yeah, you really can't write. Or, wow, yeah, you know, every fear you had, totally true. And I think Anne Lamott had that really funny, I think it, I think it was Anne Lamott had it in Bird by Bird where she had that really funny poem 
that was about how, yeah, you know, we're actually all really talking about you behind your back and you're really, yeah, you really are a big disappointment. And it's just so funny because it's so accurate and true with how I think a lot of us feel about, even if we know we have some talent, we're just like, but what if we really don't? And what if it comes out? And what if it's really clear? And then everyone knows and they're laughing at me. And, and I think I've just felt that way, quite frankly, in almost everything I've done. Like, it's like almost everything I've done, right? Like, they'll find out the truth. Well, I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm often thinking to myself, like, what am I here to do? And yeah. what, what am I actually any good at? And like the, like I always say, like the only two things that I've ever felt any kind of natural aptitude for is doing this, which is just like talking to people for some reason. I like, like it's gotta be confined. Like there's gotta be like restraints put on it. I love a one-on-one -on -one interview with like no phone interruptions and then writing. But neither of these things is, you know, quote unquote mainstream, nor, nor is either easy to monetize. Do you know what I'm saying? They're both kind of these like peripheral, like, like almost like arts and crafts interests or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the language fails me, but I'm just like, is this where I'm meant to fit into the world? Like, what's my purpose here? Well, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I think that there's this whole like, thing, right? Like, when is it a hobby and like, when is it a business, for example, right? And then, and, and I really feel like it's all about definition. And it also is, is, you know, how much are you willing to explore what's possible here? You know, I, my food blog is a super, super niche food blog that sort of happened by accident because it was related to the novel, the one that sold um, internationally and sold at auction. And I, you know, it's, I know that it can only do so much. It's got, it's got a very limited market. I have no interest in expanding beyond that market because I just don't have the bandwidth or the interest, but it does fine with its sort of like little space. And I think that's where that part of my brain comes in handy, right? Where I can say, okay, let me just look at the numbers. Let me look at my analytics and be like, okay, that's just where it is. Is there room for me to have it do more? Maybe, maybe not. And then I have to make a decision. Am I okay with that? Am I okay with that being um, all that it's going to do? I mean, there are a lot of food bloggers who, honestly, like every few years, they are like selling their food blogs and buying another food, food blog or starting another one. I mean, they're just, they have, they know how to make it work financially. And I do well, but well enough, I guess I should say not, you know, but I can't do what they do. And so it's just a really a matter of, I think, what do you have the bandwidth for? How far do you want to take it? What feels important to keep and what can you let go of in terms of, you know, trying to make it something that's super viable. But, you know, I don't, I don't really believe, I really actually don't believe in the boxes. I don't really believe in the labels. So when people go, well, this is really all you can do with podcasting, for example, right? Which, you know, years ago, we didn't even talk about podcasts. It was just so, it's only done by big organizations and so on. And, and now it's like, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing. I think what's possible. And so I think we get to keep reinventing and recreating what, what is possible. So I actually have a lot of hope in, um, in people being able to figure out how to make things work. I, you just, I think have to put in a little bit of the time in trying to figure out how that might be. So maybe it's talking to people who've been able to make it work. Maybe it's exploring for yourself other ways of, I don't know, but I, I, um, I'm always really super hopeful that there's an intersection between. Well, and excuse me, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I just, you know, you talk about food blogging and making food blogging work. Uh, <laughs> how does, how does one, I'm going to start a food blog. How do you make a food blog work to make it make money? 
Well, it's the way you, it's the way with any, any kind of like home home or, or lifestyle or gardening blog, right? It's, you have to have traffic. So you have to know what people are looking for. You have to figure out how, what you are adding to the market is different from what might already be there. Um, in my case, so the novel that sold at auction was called Friendship Bread. And the premise of this, it's in a small fictitious river town in Illinois. And it's about a bag of starter, like sourdough starter that gets passed around. It's a sweet sourdough starter. And it grows exponentially. And it basically changes the lives of the people that it comes in contact with, especially my main character. And um, I thought at the time, like, okay, well, and, you know, Girl Scout, it's a total culinary thing, like culinary chain letter. It's not even like some high bon appetit kind of, you know, food foodie thing. Um, it's like kids do it, Girl Scout troops do it. Um, and it just gets passed around. And so a lot of people have tried it. It's like this, this, it's called Amish French or bread. It's not really Amish. It's, um, some people think it is, but I've done a lot of research on this, as you can imagine. Um, it's basically a cinnamon sugar sweet bread, like a quick bread. And I said, okay, you know, I'm going to put some recipes together for my readers. That was my original thing. And it just became a thing, long story short, where a lot of people showed up because they wanted the recipes. And then I decided I was going to become the Amish French or bread expert, so that if people had a question, they would come to my site first. And that's basically what's happened. But it's still Amish friendship bread. I don't do other recipes on the website. It's what you can do with one cup of starter. Um, people don't do it as a lifestyle. They'll do it for a couple of weeks and then be like, this is too much. I'm done. It's, you know, I'm getting fat. I'm not going to make this anymore or I'm, I'm keto or whatever. And then, you know, they drop off. So I'm always going after new customers or readers or, you know, people who just want to bake and have fun with it. But I lose them after a while because they're just done with it. And I'm fine with that. I get that that's how that goes. And so I just over the years, I actually didn't even monetize until much later in the game. I actually have much less traffic now than I did when the book first came out. It was a real phenomenon happening in, in the U.S. again, which the book actually helped kick off people baking Amish French bread again and passing it around. I had a ton of traffic then, but I wouldn't monetize because I wanted to keep the integrity of my website. So I didn't do it. You know, and now I'm like, why didn't I do it? <laughs> right. Um, because I was creating, I was spending a lot of time, Brad, a lot of time creating really great content and recipes and spending time on the back end and building the blog and all the technical stuff. I and mean, that cost money. You know, I had to pay to host it. I have to pay to get help for design. I, I did some basic coding myself and, but it just, it takes a lot of time. And I was giving it away, you know, as, as a, as a service, something as I wanted to do for my readers, but Actually, when I you know 80% of the people that show up are not my readers, probably 95% now, you know, so it just became a service that I was doing for free. And, you know, and so eventually I decided to monetize. I have ads on the site. I also have some digital cookbooks. Um, and again, you know, it doesn't make a ton of money, but it was honestly the only cash flow we had coming in other than some stimulus stuff because my husband was out of work since March. It was consistent for me. And so that's where I'm kind of like. You know, and, you know, I was really judgy about it. I would not monetize for like the first seven years. I would not monetize. Hmm. I have I, I have similar things like that, too, where I'm like, why am I not being like more aggressive and uh, like forthright about compensation for hard work? And what is it in me that feels like bad about that? <laughs> an artist no you know what it's an artist thing i um there's a woman an, a writer her name is beth hoffman she wrote a book called saving cc honeycutt it's a beautiful book it's a wonderful book 
Um, it was it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It came out I think a year or two before my before Friendship Bread had come out. And I talked with her after the auction because I had a lot of guilt that the book had sold at auction. I got in a large advance. And I, I should say that, and I have no problem sharing this, but you know, my first book, you know, my I had visualized, I put out there in my vision board that I was hoping it would have an advance of forty grand. My first book, I got ten grand. That was my advance, right? And you know what? I wasn't thrilled, but I was really okay with it because I was so excited to be in the game, you know. And then, you know, with my fourth book, which was supposed to be my career was supposed to be over because my numbers have been trending down and so on, and it sold at auction and did really well with six figures, a high six figures because it was a two book deal. I had a lot of guilt about it because the book didn't perform and they'd paid the kind of money that they thought that the book was going to do really well, like hit a list, you know. And so I was in conversation with Beth. Um, at that time, and she told me, you know what, do not feel bad about having been paid for your work, because we all put in a lot of time and energy to make our writing good. And I'd be like, yeah, but a lot of people do and they don't get paid. And she's like, just, she would not let me go down that path. She was very clear about owning, um, I guess, both our craftsmanship and our skill and our love and our passion and our time. And, and, and then, you know, it's that it's a market reality, you know, that sometimes you get paid for your books and sometimes you don't, but you don't feel bad about it. You don't feel bad about someone having decided that they want to pay or support your work. And I did have a problem with it. It was really hard for me to deal with, but she, she really helped me with that. And I would say, pass that same message, you know, onto you. I think that we just feel guilty that as artists, we should somehow be doing this, um, without that kind of compensation. And I think that if you can do it like that, that's that's wonderful. But I wish I'd monetized my blog years earlier and I don't I don't um, I don't know that I, I mean I would be writing whether or not I was I, I got published. I mean I don't think that that would have changed. Um, but I will also say that I'm very grateful that my writing has also um, helped support my family. And I've also worked very hard on my craft. I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to figure out how to be a better writer. You know, every, when I went to auction, it was interesting because every single editor I spoke to, you would think there would be consensus, right? Because they all wanted the book. There'd be some consensus about the changes that needed to be made. Every single, I think I spoke to 12 editors. They all had different things that they were really passionate about and what they wanted to keep and what they wanted to change. And I would actually have one person say, can we combine Edie and Hannah? Another person say, I love Edie and Hannah, right? It's like, and that just really, you know, was such an eye opener to me that everybody has a different take on all of this. So I, I'm just at the point now where I'm like, you know, you just, you just appreciate the work that you create and then you figure out if there's something more that wants to be done with it. And if so, like if you want to get it published and if you want it in the world, if so, you just accept, you accept the gifts that come with that. And sometimes you'll say no. I mean, I know a lot of writers who have turned down big deals because they didn't have alignment with the publisher. And I think that's really important too. But I think that if you have alignment and you're like, I'm going to do this, then you do it and you don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Don't look back. Right. Yeah. I Everything happens for a reason. We talked about this. I actually really, um, I really deeply believe that. And I think that the only key to that is that we have to be willing to look at ourselves in that moment and understand what's happening, right? So you don't just say, yeah, it all happens for a reason. And it's just some pithy statement. You look at it and you turn it over and you trouble it and you understand your own peace with it and place with it. And you don't let it be a wasted, a wasted moment, whether it was good or bad, quote unquote, right? 
So I want to shift a little bit and talk about the the two new books and in particular about the mode that you're working in. Like this is of, of interest to me um, and it's kind of an extension of the broader conversation that we've been having about your um, creative and professional dexterity is that you're working in a compressed mode. You know, you talked earlier about going off to get your MFA, uh, I believe you said at the age of 50, is that right? Yep, I got it at 50. Okay. Okay. I just want to say this for people listening. I can see Darian right now. You do not look like you're in your 50s. Like I'm 45 and I'm like, I, I think I need to start moisturizing. You look uh, <laughs> significantly you. younger than I am even. So <laughs> kudos. But uh, I, want to, I want to hear you talk about the nature of this work. Not only the, the, the compression that you're working in, you know, this like really, which is a really difficult thing to do period. But I think especially when you're delving into personal history and you're trying to capture the weight of it and, and the fullness of it, but also to, to, you know, to shrink it down into these sort of like uh, diamonds, you know, uh, just interested to hear about the, the difference between working in maybe like a longer form mode when you're writing your more commercial fiction to, to where you are now with these two books and exploring your personal history and I, you know, issues of identity. Um, well, you know, it's, I, it wasn't a deliberate choice on my part. It was really, I think me, well, two things. I think it was me kind of listening to what I think the narratives themselves is kind of how I refer to them more generally, both the poems and the prose, um, how the narratives themselves wanted to, I guess, appear on the page. And then it was also, in in the case of the poems um, for Poetry Society, I didn't have more information than what I was working with. So um, Other Small Histories actually follows my matrilineal line. So I go back to my great-grandmother and then my grandfather's three wives, my, my mother and me. And one of the things that I originally wanted to write these stories because I was, I felt a connection with, um, I'm calling her the third wife, basically my grandfather, who was actually a super kind man, a really, really um, nice, I will say good person, other than this small fact. Um, he was married to my grandmother, who I refer to as a second wife. She was his first legal, I guess, Christian wife, but he also had a village wedding when he was younger, um, an arranged marriage. And then he had an affair with his secretary while he was married to my grandmother during the war um, in China um, when they were separated. And he had a family that came from that. And I always felt, and there's a lot of disgrace around that third wife. Um, and there was uh, some, some tragic things that happened as a result over time with all of that. And I just I had a real reaction to that when I started when I when I heard the story and understood it. And, and you should know that I heard a lot of different stories until I was an adult about what had really happened. And so when I started to get closer to what I felt like was the truth, I wanted to know more and I wanted to write these stories. But then it turned out nobody had information or they or nobody wanted to talk. And so part of the compression in my in my case was because I didn't have access to more. So I was working with with, I guess, limited resources. And so with my great grandmother, we don't even have a name for her. Nobody even remembers her name. And there's no historical record of her that anyone has access to, at least that I've found so far. Um, so I actually had to do that through a lot of imagination. And um, I took a lot of creative nonfiction, poetic license with that. 
And in doing that, um, I wanted to be very careful that I didn't go off into like crazy la la land. So keeping myself with this sort of small container made me really carefully consider what I would include and what I wouldn't include. And then it just be kind of came, became, uh, I guess, a language or a process that felt, um, it just reflected, I guess, where I was and sort of with myself, because I'm now actually 53, and my my scattered brain, right, um, and still having kids in the home because I also have my kids late. So it's it the compressed form became one which, you know, after writing long, long novels, I mean, Friendship Bridge is, oh, my gosh, I think it's like almost 118,000 words. You know, my first three novels were your typical 80,000-word count sort of novels, but Friendship Bridge was a big one. And so from going from those kinds of long stories – and being like, and shrinking it down, like, you know, into these really small, like 300 words or less, you know, 300 words or less. Um, it was a really interesting creative challenge for me, you know? And and so it just kind of kind of came about that way. It was really very, very organic for me. Um, the program that I went to for my MFA, Rainier Writing Workshop, uh, one of the founders, Judith Kitchen, did a lot with this sort of short creative nonfiction form. And I really like to think that I was influenced and guided by her as I was trying to find my way th- through the program, you know? Um, so that's kind of how it came about. Do you have a preference between the two, like between the longer form and the shorter form? I really don't. I really feel like it depends on the piece, you know, right? Like I said, right now I'm back in the novels and it's actually interesting because when I look at Friendship Bread, even though it's as long as it, as it is and I have traditional chapters in there, I have these vignettes that are between like every two or three chapters that are single pages. And so, and they're just these snapshots of other people in the town who also um, came into um, connection with Friendship Bread and they don't have a bigger role in the story. They just have this one snapshot. And so I guess there's a part of me that's always, I think, been attracted to vignettes and the power of something really short doing the job. And people say, oh, well, do you like micro because we live in a Twitter world and, you know, Instagram world where you basically, you know, our lives are just captioned, right? And I go, I don't, and I really don't think that's the case, but it's definitely relevant because that is the world that we live in. Um, I think that it just depends on what you're writing, you know? So like I said, I'm back in the novel form right now and 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 I'm writing longer chapters, but if I'm going to do an exercise or a prompt, you know, I'm, I work very hard now naturally to keep it contained within either, you know, I, I just, I like the container a lot. It really works for me. So I, I don't have, I think I still do both and I want to keep doing both. And, you know, I think you learn about yourself in anything you do. So I don't want to be too precious about it, but I think in particular when you're working in a personal, like a deeply personal mode and you're delving back through family history and you're considering your own identity and like, like, where do I come from? Like, this is something I relate to creatively and personally. I think you really do. Hopefully if you do it right and you give it the right energy and attention, you do come away learning about yourself. Um, has this been the case for you? Like having gone through this process with these two books, like, did you come to any epiphanies or, did it give you like a like a sense of peace to sort of have this down on the page and to have done this work and sorted some stuff out? Um, that's a great question. It's actually interesting because even though the two books seem sort of similar in a way, because they're both about identity and, you know, sort of a, a bit about self-discovery, they're actually really different in their intentions, at least my own personal intentions. You know, for, for me, other small histories is really about witness. I really felt 
like as I was getting into the story and I was realizing, okay, some family members might be upset by this because there's a lot of, you know, not just dirty laundry, but just really hard traumatic things that happen in our family that uh, are now being shared on the page through poet, through this poetry. It be, I, what made, what gave me comfort, I guess, and faith in what I was doing was that I really felt like I had an obligation to these women in my family to be a witness to their lives. And I didn't want them to be invisible, even if we didn't have a name for my great grandmother. Um, even if, um, the third wife and the first wife um, may not be considered part of our fam- our traditional family history. I, I saw them and I am acknowledging them. So for other small histories, that that is the thing that's really important to me about that, that work. For Allegiance, it was different because um, I was telling stories that even though I've taught memoir for years, I actually have held very close and very... Um, they just are so personal that I just didn't really want to share them. And allegiance was my, or is my way of, I guess, releasing these stories and also releasing some of their hold in my body. I mean, I didn't have a horribly traumatic childhood, um, but I had a lot of small hurts and those small hurts, I think they kind of get embedded in you, like even cellularly or molecularly. And, and writing this, I don't want to say it was therapy because I did, I mean, it was in the sense that I'm releasing and I'm processing through it and so on, but I did really come to it as a writer and figure out, okay, from a craftsmanship point of view, you know, how do I want these words to appear on the page? What feels gratuitous, like it's just me feeling sorry for myself versus what feels like really valuable here is an emotional truth. So allegiance is really about emotional truth, my own personal emotional truth. And, you know, the context of my birth family and my my chosen family, you know, my husband, my children, and my community, that it's, it's really about looking about those, looking at those allegiances, right? Like, what, what do we do out of loyalty, blind loyalty, or genetic loyalty? And what what do we do, because we're choosing this, like, I want this. So, you know, subject matter wise, right, if you look at the BISAC category, they look like they're very similar, but they're, for me, and my intention in writing them, and why I feel the way I do about them being in the world, is it's really different. Yeah, you talk about the small hurts and how they seem to have like sometimes affected you on a cellular level. Like I, I would even take that a step further. Like what it made me think of is the question of ancestry and the pains that we might carry uh, from like generations past, even in our bodies somehow. I, I want to say there were studies done. Uh, like of Holocaust, is it Holocaust survivors and their children and how there were like traceable genetic mutations related to, I could be botching it, but it makes some sense to me is the point that the traumas that we experience, we carry with us in our bodies, obviously, and uh, they affect us, you know, years later and maybe always. And then, you know, it could even be like, I think about my own uh, ancestry in the American South and I wonder at it because I don't know a whole heck of a lot about my ancestors, but uh, you know, because they're from the American South, I have to imagine they were a party to, um, or at least witness to some not so great things. And I'm like, where is that in my blood? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how, how might that be affecting me now? Is it affecting me now? Like, I think those are interesting questions. 
I think those are really great questions. You know, I think that there are so many ways that you can look at it that there, I think, I mean, I really do believe that there is a biological component to a lot of these things. And, and, you know, when we talk about small hurts, it could be as simple as like if you had parents who didn't talk and they had this weird silence around you and you integrated that somehow as a child, right? That became something that you recognize as this is how people live, right? Or this is how people are in communication or this is what a marriage look, looks like. You know, it doesn't even have to be anything huge and horrible. And I do think the huger it is, the longer and harder it stays in your body. Um, but no matter what, I think we are influenced and I think things do get passed down either intentionally or unintentionally, genetically or or otherwise. And I, I feel like that's the challenge for those of us, especially who are creative, because I do feel like knowing ourselves and taking the time to understand how our art intersects with who we are as a, as a person is, is why we do what we do and why people over time have turned to artists to explain what's happening in the world and in our own lives, because we're observers, but we have to, you know, do the self observation first. And I, and I think you're also going to be surprised. Like you might start going into some of that personal history and might be surprised by what you find. And then it's when you get a response, like maybe a physical or bodily response, it's going to inform a whole another thing. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm all for, if you feel like looking, you look, if you don't feel like looking, you don't have to look. I don't feel like there's any obligation here, but I, I feel like I think it's good to kind of poke that bear every now and then and be like, I don't know what I'm going to see. And I don't know if I want to even see, but, but I, I want to know at least the emotional truth of that moment more than anything else. That's, I think what's really important to me right now. So the last thing I want to ask you, uh, just as a matter of my own personal envy and curiosity is, is living on the big Island in Hawaii. <laughs> Uh, I have been to Hawaii several times and I love the big Island. It's my favorite Island. And it sounds like you live somewhere rural. Like, can you just talk about what it's like there? Seems like a good place to be during the pandemic anyway. Uh, am I, am I on the right track? It's right. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm grateful. Quite, I mean, there's, there's definitely a reason that I'm a writer and, and, and it's funny because everyone assumes I'm an extrovert because I've done all these things. I don't have a problem talking in public. I'm, you know, fairly outspoken, but I'm actually, uh, multiple, you know, I've been, I've been tested multiple times. I am, I'm a strong introvert. I'm just an introvert who does well in extroverted situations. So the truth of the matter is living on an Island in the middle of Pacific really suits me. <laughs> um, I think sometimes it's harder on my family sometimes, even though my kids were all born and raised here, but you know, the, the pro side to living on an Island, living in Hawaii, especially right now is that we're far enough away from the mainland that some of the craziness just doesn't, there's just a delay, right? It's just, we just don't have that same dynamic. Um, I think it also helped me as a writer because I wasn't able to jump in my car and drive to every bookstore and make myself crazy trying to do all that networking that we have to do as writers. I, I really launched my career while I've been living here. So I've, I've always had the ocean between us, uh, myself and my publisher, myself and my readers. And so that kind of distance, I think, is kind of healthy. You just you don't take, you know, things too seriously. Um, and of course, we've got nature and it's really beautiful. Um, I live in what they call upcountry Hawaii. So um, for 14, 16 years, I lived in Waimea, which is about um, 1,200 to 1,400 feet above sea level. So it's up in the mountains. Yeah, I've been there. Um, I've been to Waimea. And then for the past four years, I've been in Waikoloa, which is actually more desert because we have all these micro climates on, on the island. Um, but, you know, we have goats in the yard. That is, by the way, not by choice. You know, there are pigs running around. 
Um, you know, there's just that it's, that's just kind of how it's like here. Uh, the downside about being here during the pandemic is that we have 24 ICU beds total on my Island. So if we have a really bad surge, which we haven't had yet, um, you know, we're, we're in trouble. You know, we don't have a level one hospital or whatever the hospital, or maybe it's level three. I always get it mixed up, which order it goes in, but we don't have that top hospital for, for big traumas and big issues. You'd have to go to Oahu for that. So, you know, we're, we're fine if there's not a problem, if there's a problem, like a really bad hurricane or, uh, something like the pandemic, it can go both ways. You know, if we get knocked out with electricity, if containers stop arriving and people stop flying in, um, you know, we could be in trouble. You know, we are a fossil fuel state, ironically. Um, if any of that stops, we're in trouble. If, if people get really sick, we're in trouble. So it just it kind of depends on how you look at it. Overall, I feel like I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But again, I'm not in the middle of a surge. So, well, yeah. If this, shit, yeah. if this shit hits the fan, those goats better watch out. They're going to be the first to go. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is uh, I don't think a lot of if you haven't been there before, that's what's so amazing to me about the Big Island is those, these microclimates. It's got kind of it's kind of got everything, and you can drive around it in a in a long day. And I remember my wife and I. This was back before we had kids, and we like went out to uh, what is it, Mauna Kea? What am I? What's the vol- What's the volcano? I'm I'm probably oh. well. Mauna Kea is the, the the tall one at the top where the telescopes are right now. But then, if you went to Kilauea, that's the one that's flowing. The one that yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it's flowing out yeah. into it's flowing out into the ocean. Uh, we drove out there, and it's like a it's like a extraterrestrial landscape. And we were just driving. We went down and saw the lava, like sort of flowing into the ocean, and the big plumes of steam. And then we were driving back to our hotel along the coast there, the Kona coast, I think. And and uh, just like driving through that landscape, I was like, this is so gorgeous and surreal. And, uh, and then there's a, what is there? There's a beach that we went to. It's like a black sand beach called like Popolu. <laughs> is, is, it, is there one called black sand beach? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there is. No, that was called like, po- I want to say it was called Popolu or something like that. And well, yeah, Popolu Valley is up North and that's another range of valleys that we have here. And, and we've got black, we have green sand beaches we have, and we have of course white, beautiful white sand beaches. I mean, we have, it's all here. Yeah, but but let's if we're talking about like dichotomies and contrast, let's also remember that the U.S. military is here. So this past two weeks, we've had war games. So you know there's huge military chapters flying overhead. Not right now, thank goodness. But there has been in the middle of zooms. People be like, "What is that?" And I'm like, "If I could only turn my camera, because it's on my lap, you know, you could see. I know there's you know lots of explosions happening. When I went, we went over to the Hilo side the other day and. There's tons of smoke because they were doing a lot of maneuvers and stuff like that. And, you know, at nighttime, if they're doing nighttime maneuvers, everything's shaking. Mm. So, you know, it's like it's one of these things where it's like and I think that's that's really the reality of life. Right. That's why, you know, to go back to the woman who kicked over those <laughs> those masks at, at the target, it's like, you know, yeah, Hawaii is beautiful. But let's not forget about this part. Right. Twenty four ICU beds. And, you know, after, it, you know, military, I think, is actually the number one. Um, economic driver either before or after hospitality actually on the island. And so it's like there's, there's, I think we are just living in a time of great contrast. And I feel like that's our opportunity to understand how we fit into that contrast and what we're observing and what our response is to that. All right. Well, it's, it's called Pololu Valley Beach. 
That's the one that yeah. I went to that I was just like enamored with when I was there. But um, hopefully I'll get back at some point. It's been great talking with you. Uh, you've been such a, a generous and uh, insightful guest. So I appreciate it. And I congratulate you on both of your books and on whatever's coming next. Do you have something else in the works? It seems like you're such a busy, it seems like you would have something in the works, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, no, no, I'm you, working you, on you said you had that novel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, actually, and I will mention one other thing. I'm actually, and I, I actually just signed to do an anthology of um, of uh, women of color, um, all micro essays. So, you know, right now the tentative title that we're working with is um, "Non-White and Woman," which is a um, taken from a poem by Lucille Clifton, which I got permission to use as the epigraph from Copper Canyon. So that's another project that's going to be coming in 2022. Awesome. Well, Darian, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Darian G. She has two books out this year. The first is called Other Small Histories. It's a poetry collection available from Poetry Society of America. And then the other book is called Allegiance. It's a collection of micro-essays available from Legacy Isle Publishing. If you want to find Darian online, you can go to DarianG.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at DarianG. Once again, the books are called Other Small Histories and Allegiance. Go get your copies immediately. This podcast is offered freely every single episode, almost 700 and counting, all available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you enjoy the program and you listen regularly and you have the means, you can throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to write to me, if you have some feedback, or if you want to send in a photo of where you're listening, where are you in space, you can email me at letters at other PPL.com. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Everything's available for free. It's a good app. Go get the app. So coming up next week, I, th- I, have, I think I have a conversation with a guy named Travis Haywisher. He's a comedian, and he wrote a uh, funny baby naming book. And basically, we just talk about my name the entire episode. So get ready for that. Travis Haywisher next week. Seriously, be safe about COVID. I'm talking to myself, too. Though I don't ever leave my garage, so I think I'm okay. Though we might see my parents who live within driving distance. I don't know, man. It's all so fucking crazy. I'm not getting on an airplane, though. That's ridiculous. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Happy holiday. 